Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd with me, Hannah Crosby. For the first six episodes of this podcast, we'll be delving into the world's most important fine wine regions. We'll be talking to our buyers and account managers as they share their insights and tips to help you enjoy and build your fine wine collection in 2022. In this week's episode, I'm discussing the delicious and exciting wines from the continent of the USA with buyer Katriona Felstead and senior fine wine account manager Michael Jordan. So grab a glass of something good as we learn what US wines we should be opening in 2022. Kat, Mike, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation as we discuss how we can best enjoy and build our collections of US wine in 2022. Kat, let's start by introducing you to our listeners. Can you tell us a bit about your story in the wine trade and how you came to work as a buyer at Berry Brothers and Rudd? Hello. So um, I finally got into the wine trade back in 2004. Um, Mm -hmm. That had been actually after a few years of working for a Spanish petrochemical company because I did languages at university and uh, I did uh, French and Spanish and um, that's why I went into that route. But I quickly realised how much I wanted to be working with something that I loved and enjoyed. Uh, I was getting into wine at the time and um, so started applying for jobs in the wine trade and then moved to (laughs) Barry Brothers in 2007, uh, originally in the marketing team and then a position opened up in the buying team. Uh, It was just after I got my master of wine as well so it all worked out really well for me and I've been a buyer um, at Berry Brothers now since 2013. Brilliant and you've only recently become our US wine buyer. What have you found most exciting and surprising about the region? So that's a good question. I did have some previous knowledge of the US because up until 2016 I'd actually been uh, looking at uh, after California for, for parts of the Berry Brothers portfolio, just, okay. just all of it, um, but then had a bit of a hiatus between 2016 until 2020, which late 2020, that's when I sort of took over for the for the whole amount of producers that we work with directly. So I think there's so much more variety perhaps there than a lot of people might necessarily realise. You can get so many different styles of wine from so many different terroirs. Uh, I I know that will apply to all wine regions, but I think it's quite Mm. easy just to think of the US as making sort of big, blousy, alcoholic, rich styles of wine. And actually, when you know what you're looking for from the US, that's that's very much not the case uh, at the fine wine level. So for me, it's about finding and understanding the individual nuances between different producers and understanding about their terroir. and, And that's what I find really interesting about it. And Mike, tell us about how you became to be a account manager at Barry Brothers and Rudd. Well, I spent 20 years in San Francisco in the wine industry as a sales and buyer. And then uh, we decided to move to London uh, to be closer to my in-laws. And I just had heard of the company, heard how wonderful they were. And so I wanted to get into the fine wine aspect, uh, applied and lucky enough five years later, still here. Amazing. And when you were buying in the US, was it um, US wines that you were buying or other things from further afield? I uh, focus on US buying ah. my company. 50% of our sales was US wines, uh, you know, and so it was a real experience. Lots of tasting, getting to travel to California, Oregon, Washington, and really getting to know these places and the people behind it. Well, you're on the right podcast. Uh, Kat, <laughs> do you remember the first bottle of great US wine that you drank? 
Uh, I was given a, a, a bottle of Ridge Lytton Springs and uh, it was a 2003 vintage. And unfortunately, I came home one night to find my husband had drunk it all. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm afraid I've still, after all these years, never forgiven him. So one day I'll get to taste that vintage of Lytton Springs. Um, I think it probably would have been a Ridge. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to taste um, some Montepello and uh, loved it. Oh, brilliant. That's sacrilege. How often do you bring that up? Oh, it does get brought up on an annual basis, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, having lived in the LA, San Francisco area for most of your life, can you tell us a little bit about which regions you came to love in the US? Yeah, I mean, I really, Napa was always the big attraction. You would have family, friends come into town. They all wanted to go to Napa. Uh, but I really once I started buying, really found places like the Anderson Valley, mm. uh, Sonoma Coast, really attracted me even more to the wines of California. I tend to be a little bit of an old world palate. Um, and those areas, not only are they beautiful, but the wine being made there is incredible. Kat, although we talk about US wine as a category, it's obviously a vast region. Can you give us an overview of the key fine wine areas that collectors should know about? Sure. Well, I think, um, I mean, the most obvious ones, broadly speaking, are um, California, obviously, and then we can talk about multiple regions within California, um, but also Oregon as well. And Oregon has been a sort of developing fine wine region for a few years now, but I think uh, it feels like it's it's really sort of gaining some momentum at the moment. Um, we're talking mostly Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays. I just think that they are they are getting better and better. Um, a lot of these producers had planted some time ago, and those vines are now getting more and more mature and producing mm. more and more interesting fruit and representing their terroirs. So. Uh, Oregon wines uh, from certain producers um, that are doing it really well are, are really, really interesting. Down in California, obviously, you've got uh, a number of different regions that you could be looking at. Uh, Mike just mentioned uh, Sonoma Coast, for example. Um, you've got Napa Valley. You've got um, more central Sonoma areas. You've got Carneros that's part, that sort of straddles Napa and Sonoma. And you've just got different, so many different multiple regions within that as well. That it's, it's quite, a, quite a complex area if you want to drill down into it into it properly but each one of those regions has a sort of a the styles that it's best known for mm. although obviously that doesn't apply as a board suite to everybody but there's quite a lot of variety there oh, yeah for sure and mike you've talked about your love for napa but are there any lesser known regions that you think listeners might not know about but should i think the main one for me and you don't see a lot of it over here yet is the anderson valley which oh. is north of sonoma and it really it's a small Pinot Noir focused area, but it just has some of the most amazing hillsides and fruit coming from that area. And I, I hope that we'll see it in the UK more and more. But if people are over in California, it's definitely a destination. It reminds me of small vineyard times before Napa really blew up and became a real tourist attraction. You meet with the winemaker, you taste out of the barrels. It's, it's just a great experience and you get a great appreciation of the area. Wonderful. Should fine wine collectors in the UK be more aware of vintage to vintage variation in US wines? Um, I personally think uh, yes. I think it, increasingly, I mean, it's always been a bit of a 
an easy blanket to hide under to say that there's no vintage variation in the new world for stock mm. because there is it's just that you know it, it's not always as, as quite as marked as in the old world where where conditions vintage to vintage can can be more temperamental but i think from my perspective i think um particularly as we're seeing in the you know in the latter half of the last decade and in in you know last year as well um it you know climate uh, conditions and um and uh disasters such as wildfires uh, are other things now that are impacting um the us quite significantly um with wildfires in 2020 for example making a big impact on both oregon and california so for me now it's it's those sorts of climatic incidences, I guess, that are also going to inform people's understanding um, of vintage variation, if you want to call it that, between um, uh, in, in different producers' portfolios. Let's talk a little bit about, as you say, Kat, misconceptions or perceptions people have about US wine. Um, in terms of wine style and the perception of fine wine from the US, how do you think things have changed over the past decade or so? Well, I think there was a time where that generalization, especially in Napa, there was a truth to it. There, there was a, a flavor and a style that many people were going for. Um, I just think trying to make their own mark as far as what is a California wine, many of the U.S. wineries, they wanted to be like the Bordelais. They wanted to be like the Burgundians. And mm. there was a time where this ripeness was a style they were chasing economically, finding their own path. Um, but I think many realized there's, there's a happy medium between these big robust wines and finding terroir and balance to them. And I think over the last 10 years, you've, I've really seen that a lot all over California, even Oregon and Washington to a lesser extent. And what do you think the role of the wine critic has played in that change in conception? Uh, I think for many of it, the change of a certain gentleman uh, had a big <laughs> to do with it. Um, I, I think it allowed people to explore more because they weren't necessarily chasing the hundred points from that gentleman. And no disrespect to him, he helped the industry grow immensely in the US. But I think it's allowed individualization in the winemaking more. And I think that's nothing but positive for California and the US in general. Brilliant. So Kat, I kind of want to talk about the impact of climate change and how winemakers are working to mitigate its effects. Well, I think any of the top producers are, are always very conscious of their roles as, you know, effectively farmers. They need to work their vineyards in a way that is sympathetic towards um, the environment around them. Um, and ultimately, if they can if they can manage that and use techniques in the vineyard that sort of minimises the use of uh, too much water etc then that can help what they're doing to grow their grapes i mean anything mm. that they can do that's better for the vineyards in that way more natural what well, more natural for the vineyards in that way often does have the impact of helping buffer the vines against sort of changes in climate obviously it's not an extreme it's not a pure science um but they will be working to to offset certain things that can can happen you know but what you can't ever combat against is extreme weather events and i think that's mm. the thing that's the hardest um for the producers at the moment you know you can you can 
do lots of things in the vineyard to try and combat against drought as best as possible. And that is a big mm-hmm. problem in California. Um, but you can't, you know, offset against a, a massive storm or, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of storm that started all the wildfires back in 2020. So there are things you can do, but things that you can't really ever control. So does the effects of smoke taint mean that there will be some vintages that we actually miss out on altogether? Yes, sadly, um, it will. In 2020, a number of the producers that we work with did not make red wine in that vintage um, and have very little wine to release in that vintage. So it is a significant issue. Um, And these are producers who are so quality conscious that they have decided that rather than risk any producing a wine that might develop smoke taint over time because again it's not always it's not always clear straight away that a wine has got smoke taint in it this is something that comes out Mm. in the bottle over time but they have taken the decision that they don't want to risk that they don't want to risk someone in five years opening a bottle that's not perfect and so they have decided not to produce red wines in that vintage So let's talk about this year, looking ahead at what we should be buying and drinking. So wines from the USA and new wild wines in general aren't often the focus of a fine wine cellar. Why should every collector have a case of USA wine in their cellar? Mike, let's start with you. Well, I think it's important to have some new world wine, especially California, Oregon, Washington. Um, It's just a different flavor, a different place. And the great thing about wine is you taste something and you can imagine the place. And Mm. I think think California, Oregon, Washington are making some amazing wines right now. And I think people would be missing out to have that addition to their cellar. Mm. What do you think, Kat? Why should every collector have a case of US wine? I think, I mean, obviously, um, some US wines are amongst, you know, would be up there with what collectors would consider the very best wines in the world as well. So they they are part of a portfolio um, that uh, a wine collector you know, a true wine collector who is fascinated with all styles of wine should really be looking at. You have some, you know, hugely well-known names which are very, very low quantity productions. So to also be able to get hold of some of these wines is a is a bit of a treat in itself. If you have the opportunity to purchase a case of something that's really highly sought after, then that that's, you know, it's just a, a brilliant thing to have in your cellar. Not always easy to access, though. Mm, well, let's talk a bit more exactly what we should be putting in our cellar. Kat, which producers are doing brilliant things in US wine right now? OK, we have um, well, there's quite a few who I work with who I've got um, such high opinions of. It, it depends. I suppose we should start thinking of what style of wine um, you are interested in buying. Um, if you're talking about Pinot Noir, for example, and if you know, and this is great for anyone that that enjoys buying Burgundy, you should really look at uh, Oregon Pinot Noir, for example, but also uh, you know Sonoma Coast producers like Occidental, who we work with. So in Oregon, I think uh, Nicolas J are doing brilliantly. Um, mm. Their wines really have a, a Burgundian aspect to them. They're not Burgundy wines, but they um, they are. It's a joint project with Jay Boberg and Jean-Nicolas Mayo with Mayo Camusay. So it's kind of clear how that Burgundian influence comes into the wines. Um, the same, we work with uh, Lingua Franca in Oregon as well. That's a project with Dominique Lafont from Burgundy and Larry Stone. And again, you really feel that 
old world finesse and quality coming through to those wines, even though they're made in, in a new world region. And down with California, um, I, I mentioned Occidental. I absolutely love those wines. That's a project set up by Steve Kistler, who was at Kistler. Um, it's his, his family project now with him and his daughter, Catherine, and they are sensational Pinot Noir. I mean, you can't really beat these types of wines when you taste them. They're absolutely delicious. Brilliant. What would you think, Mike? Which producers should we be on the lookout for? Well, I think on the Cabernet-based side, you know, people like Dunn Vineyard, uh, who we have been working with in the last couple of years, um, you know, that really beautiful Napa Mountain fruit, uh, just making some incredible wines at really reasonable prices. Um, also, big fan of producers like Dominus and Harlan, who are at the higher end of the price spectrum but are just some of the greatest wines made in the world in my opinion and i'm also mm. a big fan of ridge whether it's their santa cruz focus cabernet and chardonnay based wines or their more north zinfandel and mm. other varietals the wines are just spectacular um mm. another favorite of mine that we do a little bit of work with is philip tony who is on the west side mountains of Napa, and he's probably an 80-year-old Englishman who came to California in 1969 and has just been quietly making some of the greatest wines, I think, in Napa Valley. So I, I really believe, you know, those are some strong contenders for what you should have in your cellar. Mm -hmm. And I, if I can just add one as well, we've been talking mostly about um, reds, although Mike also referenced a few whites there, but on the white side, you know, there are some great white wines as well in California. Um, and Raimi, for me, is, is a fantastic producer of um, Chardonnay, um, where you can taste that these wines are from a warmer climate. You can taste that they are uh, California. Raimi are based in Sonoma. Um, but there's always a real freshness and purity and uh, minerality that comes through those wines. So you, you can get the best of both worlds from a producer like Raimi, for example. So Kat, style-wise, you've mentioned Old World Finesse. Is that something that's especially attractive to UK buyers or is that something that has universal appeal? That's a really good question, actually. Um, I think so. I think uh, in the UK here, you know, we have um, a UK or perhaps actually often we call it a European palette um, as opposed to Californian drinkers who, uh, or, or US drinkers who would have a, a different style of palette. So in general, yes, that that sort of more, that sort of old world balance and freshness that you can sometimes find in um, and these wines from California and Oregon definitely has appeal to um, UK consumers. And it's interesting because sometimes you look at the critics and certain critics who are US based will rave about a certain vintage um, for which is has great appeal for the US audience. But actually, when you look at the UK consumers, there might be the subsequent vintage that that particular US critic hasn't rated quite so highly, um, but would actually have more appeal to the UK palate. It might have more freshness and, um, and balance in it rather than more ripeness of fruit. So uh, it is interesting. They are definitely two different worlds. So Kat, what would you say is the hallmark that distinguishes US wine from Old World? Uh, I think it's quite difficult to give it a hallmark as such. I mean, I think one the one thing I love about the US is that so many producers are are different. These are these are producers making terroir wines. Um, therefore, every producer has a different style a, a, and and a different 
appeal about them. Um, I think obviously, you know, you are in California, you're in Oregon, it's they're warmer climates than in the uh, in the old world. So you're going to get more ripeness of fruit generally. But as with any wine, it is all about the balance within that wine. And you can have ripeness of fruit and you can have, you know, reasonably elevated alcohols. But if if those are balanced out with their sort of the minerality that you might have thought was something that was more of an old world um, attribute, then that's what gives you overall a, a really beautiful wine. Um, so Colgan, for example, in Napa, and um, we tasted their 2018s recently, um, and those are such balanced wines. Um, you know, you would have thought that from Napa, Napa Cabernet blends, that they are really, um, they would be uh, a little bit rich and full, but they have all of the structure and all of the, um, and definitely beautiful ripeness, but without the kind of oversweet richness that you might otherwise have thought might come from that region. And with a real kind of savoury mineral element to them as well. I just find them so balanced. So yeah, you, you can you can get a really nice um, blend of different qualities in the wines. So Mike, if anyone is looking to get started with collecting US wine, what advice would you give? Are there particular wine styles or vintages that people should be looking out for? I think it's important that uh, they know their palate and the style that they enjoy. Uh, I think that vintages 940105 out of Napa and Sonoma are good for that older style that many people in the UK enjoy. For some of the more recent vintages, the 12, the 13, the 14 are young, vibrant, and some of the best wines coming out of Napa and Sonoma and even Santa Cruz in quite a while. Another vintage I would suggest looking at is the 2011. Initially, it got a lot of negative press because it wasn't the quote California style, but these wines have really aged well and developed well in the bottle. And some of the 11s I've had recently have been some of the better wines from those particular producers. Brilliant. And what advice would you give Kat to anyone looking to get started with collecting US wine? I think generally as, as regards, you know, who to choose and where to start your collection. I mean, by all means, it's always worth reading around, reading the critics, etc. But I think speaking to an account manager at Berries is a very good start because um, <laughs> they can sort of guide you in the right direction. I mean, as with anything, like I said earlier, it's about personal preference. And do you as a collector want to collect some more Pinot Noir or some Chardonnay or some Cabernet blends um, or some Zinfandel? So it's about trying to work out what you want, but then um, be guided by um, by someone who knows the region well enough to be able to point you in the right direction of the, the best people to buy there. Well, speaking of people that know the region very well, Mike, do you have any favourite producers you'd recommend to aspiring collectors? There's really so many. I mean, for me, Dunn is my favourite personally. I'm, I'm very much into Cabernet. I'm into mountain fruit. So a lot of my Napa tastes go to those mountain areas, Howl Mountain, Spring Mountain, Diamond Mountain. There's just some incredible producers there. Um, some of the Napa floor, you know, people like Dominus are just making wines beyond belief. Uh, you know, Occidental, as was said earlier, I think they're currently making some of the best wines they've made in the history of Kistler slash Occidental. And I think those are 
a great place to start as far as Pinot Noir. Nicholas J., I think also making some incredibly great wines out of Oregon at the moment. And if you're a Pinot fan, it's a great state in general to explore. And among your private clients and the wider fine wine market, what trends are you seeing when it comes to U.S. wine? I'm definitely seeing more open-mindedness from all my clients wanting to experience, whether it's buying a case, buying a bottle from stock. They, they really want to see what they can find there and, and find their palate when it comes to U.S. wines. You know, like there is a dynamic difference in regions there, and it's about finding that individual palate and what you like. And I think it's part of the great thing about wine is you can have a good time with it and explore and really find out what makes you happy. Cat. Your job means you get to taste a variety of brilliant wines. How do you decide which you add to your collection? Well, I would love to be able to buy a lot of the wines I taste. Um, <laughs> the truth is, I don't. I, I can't. I don't always. I'm not always able to. Mostly, uh, you know, not only because some of these wines obviously are quite expensive, but also because a lot of these wines are uh, actually have got really limited quantities. So um, it wouldn't be fair for me to buy a case and for a, a customer not to be able to access one. But yeah, I, I would have plenty on my wish my wish list to to put in my in my in my virtual cellar. <laughs> So looking ahead to what we should be drinking this year in 2022, looking at our own cellars, what vintages should we be withdrawing to drink this year? Mike, let's start with you. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, some of the Napa's are 94, 05, 01. Not all those wines are probably in many of our clients' uh, cellars, but vintages like 12 and 13 are just starting to really come alive. As far as Pinot Chardonnay, I think 12, 13, 14, it's a great time to bring them home and pop a cork. Kat, would you echo that? Yes, I would actually. Um, and I, I think what's interesting as well as uh, Mike mentioned those older vintages, and as he said earlier, that are sort of made in a, in a slightly um, a different style, a style before everything got a little bit kind of riper and richer. Uh, and I don't think anyone should sort of underestimate the ability to age of that style of wine. I had a fascinating experience when I was in California a while ago where someone gave me a bottle of 1976 Oakville Napa Valley wine and it was absolutely beautiful. It was, it, you know, once the bottle was opened, it needed to be drunk quite quickly, but it mm -hmm. was beautiful. So that just gives you an idea of how long some of these wines can age. Um, don't ever just write them off. But from certain vintages, like the ones that Mike's mentioned, they will be drinking beautifully some of them now, but could also last for a long time as well. Yeah, what kind of aging potential could we expect from those kinds of wines? It obviously varies very much on the producer and the vintage, so it's difficult to say. But certainly, um, you know, at the top level, you can do 20, 30 years. I think that, though, that, I mean, as with everything, um, it's very much down to your personal taste as to how you like mm. your wine to taste. And if you enjoy the kind of youthful fruitiness of some of these wines, then you'll want to drink them sooner. But if you like them when they've got really savoury and leathery and um, might be wonderful with some nice hard cheese, then, you know, you can keep them for that bit longer. Yeah, I agree 100%. There, there's wines that are, I one of my great wines was a 68 Mondavi Reserve Cabernet yeah, out of Magnum, and I drank that six years ago. And <laughs> the life in that bottle even surprised me. Um, so, you know, these wines 
can really age well. I generally, personally, like them a little bit younger and fresher, but it's always an experience to be able to drink a 76 Oakville or a 68. I mean, these are just wines of amazing quality. Mine was the Mondavi Reserve as well. <laughs> <laughs> they made they made some incredible wines. They in made the great wines days. back then. They did yep. really, yeah, yeah, yep. fantastic aging potential. Uh, in Bordeaux, we're seeing producers make wines that are increasingly approachable in their youth, as well as having potential, like you say, to age beautifully. Is this something you're seeing in the US too? Kat, we'll start with you. It's funny because it's almost been the other way around, if you like, in California. The wines have always been, well, the more modern style wines have been open in their youthfulness because that is very much the style. Whereas Bordeaux has been the other way around. Bordeaux needed a bit more kind of ripeness and, and fruit to allow um, you to enjoy them when they were younger. So I, I think it's the kind of the inverse almost of Bordeaux. It's, it's almost that the producers there are focusing on the minerality and freshness in the wines to balance out that ripe fruit rather than the other way around. Amazing. And from your own cellars, which bottles are you most looking forward to opening in 2022? Mike, how about you? Well, I've collected Ridge Montebello for a long time and probably going to open an 05 or 02 this year. It's one of the few wines I actually brought over from San Francisco. It just, we were talking about longevity. Something like Ridge Montebello for me is not even ready in most vintages about 15 years. Uh, so, you know, the Ridge Montebello look really looking forward to. I have a couple of Dominus from the 90s that I'm looking forward to opening as well. Wonderful. What about you, Kat? It's a good question. I, this is just more for curiosity than anything else. I happen to have a bottle of Colgan from 2003. Um, I'm very much looking forward to opening it at some point and seeing how it's tasting now. It's one of those wines I keep looking at thinking, oh, I need a special occasion. I'll be glad exactly. to join well, you and bring a Montebello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just good. make sure your husband doesn't drink it first. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I will. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> Can you tell us about the last special bottle of US wine that you enjoyed? I mean, I am very privileged at work to be able to taste some amazing wines, you know, that we then buy for our customers. Uh, Occidental would have to be up there. Um, I, I, I love their wines. Tasting the release last year, um, which was the 2018 single vineyards, was an absolute treat. Uh, I think I'd go for them. And what about you, Mike? Probably the 96 Mount Eden Pinot Noir. Uh, it's a small producer right next to Ridge in the Santa Cruz Mountains. We, we sell a little bit of wine with them. They, they don't send a lot of wine to the UK, but when we do have it, I would suggest people look for it with us with others i just everything they do is incredible uh and the 96 i was quite surprised how vibrant it was i thought it would be a little bit past its prime but it was right in its prime and this was just a year and a half ago uh well actually a year ago that i had it last christmas so santa cruz mountains for me is one of the great areas and undiscovered both in california and here that i would suggest you know really take a look at some of the producers in that area they're making some incredible wines so just wrapping up now kat if there's one thing we should take away from today's conversation whether that be a region to dig into a vintage to try or a producer to watch what would that be uh, i think well first of all broadly speaking i think um it's to have an awareness that that California and Oregon are just not not one big blanket region, you know, under the mantle of USA. 
um, there is such different variety within those regions and um, different uh, styles of wine and so many different terroirs to, to, to taste through the wine um, that it's a really fascinating region to explore. So I think it's yeah definitely worth paying some attention to what's going on over there and to try and delve into it more. I find at the moment um, Nicola Jay in Oregon, um, who we work with, the just doing an absolutely brilliant job. I'm finding it really interesting to watch how they're developing and growing and to see how the styles of wine, the style of wine they make is becoming even better and better with each vintage. So I, I would say keep an eye out for Nicolas Jay. They're already doing great things, but I think they will just keep on going. 100% agreed. And Mike, if there's one thing we should take away from today's conversation, what would that be? I have to agree with Kat. I mean, it's about the, you know, the diversity of the areas in California, Oregon, and just realizing, you know, what your palate is and what you enjoy. And there will be a place for you to find those type of wines somewhere in those areas. And it's just the fun of exploration that I want to kind of push and just enjoy it. And I come from there. I have a great love of the West Coast and there are some amazing places and some amazing wines being produced there. Brilliant. Well, all that remains for me to say is, Kat, Mike, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to discuss the amazing wines of the US with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to hear more episodes or you're keen to learn more about fine wine from our experts, visit bbr.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you've been enjoying the podcast in general, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to welcome you back soon. But until then, thank you again for listening to this episode of Drinking Well.